0: I just want to say thank you to the Steinbrenner family Um, Brian Cashman for bringing me here 11 years ago believing in me um, enough to bring me here and um, you know it's been a great 11 years I want to thank all my teammates Um, I love you guys I know that's what I'm gonna miss the most is the relationship I have in there with with my guys Um, uh, all the clubhouse staff uh, Robbie Lou um, the training staff, Stevie, Shucky, Timmy, thank you for keeping me on the field. <laughs> um, but most of all, I want to thank you, the fans.
1: Flip, nobody does a ceremony quite like the New York Yankees.
2: No, it was a great ceremony. I mean, uh, you know, Debbie Timon does, uh, the Yankees have so many great ceremonies, and Debbie Timon's in the forefront of putting all those pieces together to help uh, make sure it flows and it works and they have the right uh, right guests and... and uh, but I must tell you, listening to CeCe, that was so emotional. It was, There were was so many parts of that day that uh, if you didn't have a tear in your eye, then I don't think you could be moved as a human being, because I'll tell you, there wasn't a dry eye in a place, on, and especially when the, the letter, the letter uh, came oh, up. Oh, was that, that was one of the most emotional things I've ever experienced in a ballpark.
1: When they showed his kids, because I didn't know it was coming. I don't know if you knew it was no, coming. No, I didn't know either. They showed his kids, and in my head, I was like, because I'm watching with my family, like, oh. I'm going to cry now. Now I'm going to cry. And I cried.
2: No shame in it. No. CeCe cried. Yeah, and well, he should. I mean, you know, 11 years. What a career at the—well, 11 years with the Yankees, a couple years with the Indians before then. But what a great career overall, and and his years with the Yankees in particular were terrific. So a great leader in the clubhouse, you know, great—it's a really good ambassador for the game, uh, intense competitor, one one of the most competitive people I've ever met. Uh, or have it witnessed them play incredible but listen he will be missed and he's he's going to hall of fame so no what doubt, a, what a run
1: no doubt um and then you had the first pitch to his mother which was emotional as mm-hmm. well yes. um but to your point about cece's greatness just how great is he meaning is he the best free agent signing the yankees have ever had let me give you some names
2: that's Pictures only. I'll give you yeah, some pictures. Oh, well, if you quant- if you qualify like that, pitchers only. Catfish Hunter was a great was a great sighting. Um, I mean, outside, I mean, I'd just say in the last twenty years, yep. I see say Cece, Yeah, for it's, sure.
1: It's him or Mussina, and it's CC wins. Oh,
2: Mussina was was great too. Mussina was a great signing as well. Uh, but I mean, I, I well, that's tough, boy. CC was. I I'd to I'd give it to CC. Yeah. I mean, but Mussina had a great Hall of Fame career too, and and obviously, and so did Catfish.
1: Yeah, and then obviously before that was Goose Gossage was a good signing. Right, right. Different um, kind of
2: reliever is different than starter, But still, yeah no, yeah, no, I get it. Yeah, no, yeah.
1: yeah. Um, how about fast forward a couple of years? If LeMahieu keeps doing what he's doing now, that's a great signing.
2: Yes. No. Well, the one year, he's already standing like on Mount Rushmore after a year. <laughs> yeah. The Yankee Mount Rushmore somewhere. But, I mean, this is something you have to do over time, and you don't have to spend I, – I I, believe you got to spend at least five years with a team before – you know, they start giving you plaques and monuments and all the things that they do. You know, it's it's okay. You got to you should do it. You should honor your great great players, but even you can't do it after a year, right? You got to have some some track record. And I think that uh, he's established his track record. I mean, it's was, it was a little a little uh, it's a little early to have that conversation, but he certainly had a great year.
1: Yeah. Before we move on, I want to wrap the CC conversation with your thoughts on him and his role heading into the postseason.
2: Uh. Based on what I've seen, I mean, he had that inning where he pitched and uh, I mean, he was five and I know they'll give him another inning, maybe two somewhere along the line, pitch him out of the bullpen, see how he fits. I mean, it's tough for a starter who's never come in the middle of a game to go become a reliever. And in the postseason, if you put him in a high leverage situation, you know, that's 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 really going to be tough because if he's not, you know, used to that scenario, if you will, Uh, and it's all mental, obviously, but it still plays a big part of the game. So, I mean, where will he be? He's not going to start. He won't be a starting pitcher, but he could could certainly be a piece out of that bullpen. There's no doubt he could be that. So I think what I saw was encouraging. I think they'll get another couple of times over the weekend before the season officially ends. And then I think they'll make their determination. But certainly, even his presence on the bench or in the clubhouse means a lot to this team.
1: For our new listeners, let's set the table a little bit flip. I am Kevin Sullivan. I am from the Digital Media Department here at YES, and you obviously are Mr. John J. Filippelli. Yankees fans have heard your name for years, since the beginning of YES, uh, 18 years, but you've actually been in and around the business for four decades? Five. Five decades. 45
2: years. It's a long time.
1: So you come to this podcast with a lot of experience, uh, though this is our first podcast.
2: NBC Sports, uh, Fox, uh, a couple of ABC Sports. Uh, baseball Network. You know, I've been around. I've done did a lot of things over my four. And obviously, yes, for the last NBC, my first seventeen. Yes, for my last the last eighteen. And in the middle was some interesting times and a lot of fun. And uh, but part of my career, no doubt.
1: And for long time listeners, I don't know if they could be long time. What is this episode eight? Uh, yeah, I think so. <laughs> but for long time listeners, um, we're gonna do things a little bit differently this week. Usually, we uh, you and I have amazing conversations, thought provoking conversations for about 20, 25 minutes. We're actually going to get to Al a little bit sooner. We're changing up the format a little bit. What do you think?
2: Oh, uh, that's great. I, I think people want to hear the, want to get to our, our subject anyway. So yeah, I think it's a good idea to sort of, uh, you know, give you something at the top. Hopefully you, uh, you'll enjoy what we have to say. And then we'll, we'll get into our guests, whoever that may be. And every week we've had it, except for one, we didn't have a guest, but we're going to try to endeavor every week to try to find a guest who's you could enjoy and you could relate to. And, uh, and we can have some fun with.
1: So before we get to Al, we're just going to do one more topic real quick. It's the end of the baseball season. By the time some people listen to this, the season will be over. Game 162 will have been played. So it seems like the apropos time to start talking about season awards. Mm-hmm. Want sure, to do that? Sure. All right, I'm going to start with the AL MVP. I'm going to give you three names. Go. Mike Trout, Alex Bregman, DJ LeMahieu. That's that, the top three. That's the top three, mm-hmm. right? I na- right? I love right. that, or- that. In that order. In that order
2: you're going? I would do that, sure. Um, I bet you it is that order. I bet you it turns out to be exactly that.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a boring. That's easy. No, that's I'm a just layup. saying. Uh, who knows? But I, but I, I, mean, I,
2: you know, Trout missed some time, and you know, yeah, but he's Trout. I mean, <laughs> he's just Trout. You know, you don't have to say anything
1: more. Yeah, the only way Trout doesn't win it is if people vote saying, well, they didn't make the postseason.
2: Well, then we go back to our favorite argument as uh, you know, most valuable player and player of the year. I mean, and they are two different, two different scenarios altogether.
1: They are. Did you know that at Curtain Call, yes, on Twitter, actually had a poll about that?
2: I did because you told me about. it. <laughs> That's how I knew. <laughs> I wouldn't have known.
1: So uh, you want to do two separate awards? Absolutely. Forty percent of our listeners agree with you.
2: Uh, you know, if, under that scenario, Trout is Player of the Year, and Lemayo has a real argument. Although you know, Gregman <laughs> Gregman did a great year too. So uh, those two guys would have a real argument for MVP then, and, and Trout would be the Player of the Year, which he should be. Yep. He is the player of the year. Yep. But 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 baseball does not make that distinction. It should. Look, awards are awards. They're so subjective. But at the end of the day, if you're going to do them, then you should do them right, in my opinion. Somebody's the most valuable and somebody's the player of the year. That's what they should do.
1: Well, 40% agreed with you, Flip. Bad news is 45% mm. agreed with me. They should just define the thing. Tell us what the award is. All right, let's move on to NL MVP. These are the names I have. Tell me if I have the top three right. Christian Yelich, Anthony Rendon, and Cody Bellinger. No, I don't. Yeah, you have the Not, names. No, no, oh, you yeah. have the order,
2: right? So you say the order of or the names. No, I'm just sorry. the names, the top. Oh, three. the names you have, right? I would that's that's fair. Okay, that's who's fair. your
1: MVP? Bellinger. Batted 301 46 home runs, 114 RBIs, a 1.025 OPS. That's impressive. Mm-hmm. I'm going Anthony Rendon.
2: Great player. He's Better great batting player. average.
1: Mm-hmm. He batted 322, 34 home runs, 124 RBI. Mm-hmm.
2: With with
1: a one point zero one three ops with what team? The Nationals. With the Nationals, right?
2: right? So Dodgers' success. I'm gonna say it's directly. The Tigers have a really good team. This is the best of their three years, by the way. This is their best team in the last three years. But Bellinger is so integral. Rendon is a really great, it's a great player. Get me wrong. I just don't see him in the same ilk as I see as I see Bellinger.
1: But, but it, Rand- the Nationals aren't making the postseason without Rendon.
2: That's probably true.
1: So that makes him valuable.
2: What the, and the Dodgers are not the Dodgers without Bellinger.
1: Oh, the drama. <laughs> it all. Oh, the humanity <laughs> of it all. That's right. American League Rookie of the Year. Yeah. You ready? Yeah. Uh, Vladimir, this is not in any order. Yeah. Vladimir Guerrero, uh-huh. Jordan Alvarez, uh-huh. and John Means out of Baltimore. Alvarez. Alvarez, hands down. Mm-hmm. You want his numbers 325, mm-hmm. 27, and 78. Mm-hmm. OPS of 1.099. Oh,
2: he was a terrific player.
1: Hands down.
2: So One of the reasons the Astros are the Astros.
1: You're right. NL Rookie of the Year. In no particular order. Pete Alonso, Fernando mm-hmm. Tatis, Mike Soroka. Here's your order. Yeah, but I'll tell you what. So, any other year, any of these guys would have won. Soroka, 13 and 4 with a 2.6.
2: Right? Terrific year. I mean, does that beat uh,
1: Alonso's year? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. Tatis, 317, mm-hmm.
2: 22 Nice numbers. Missed a lot of time. Was injured. Missed some yeah. time. So I don't, I don't put him in the same ilk as the other two. But yeah. I would, I would. Although a great play – you know, I don't know. So that's interesting. Maybe I should put Soroka. Maybe put Soroka ahead of uh, Tatis.
1: A little bit, and then Alonzo yeah. slam okay. dunk. Let's do that. let okay. I'll go there. Done. Tell me, Flip. What is the National League story of the year? The National
2: League story of the year. Um, the reason- I think, I think the. Well, I think the Cubs collapse. Yeah, I, that's I, fair. I would go there. I mean top of my head I'm sure I'm missing 28 other uh, more interesting stories but that's a pretty interesting story of uh, their, their collapse I mean they it was kind of theirs and they went down and they, they got to the end and they just couldn't do anything and uh, getting swept by the cards I mean that's why I think Madden Madden would be gone
1: of course there is no um, award right for the National League story of the year but I'd agree the Cubs collapse is pretty yeah. big uh, Alonso's home runs are big. Yeah, no question. No the question. Phillies not making the postseason despite all the money they spent.
2: Well, I mean the Padres didn't make it either. Yeah, they, you know they you know they spent all that money on Machado and the Phillies spent all that money on Harper. They didn't make, make it either. So, you know for all the money that got spent and you know the, the promise of you know postseasons to come has not realized been realized as of yet.
1: All right. Lastly, the American League story of the year. What do you think? I could give you some options or uh, no? You got I,
2: it. I, I got it. Well, in my mind what it is. I mean, it's got to be the wild card race to me. I mean, look at this race; it's fun. Oh, it's fun! It's unbelievable what's going. On. And I mean, because you know, if you live in New York, you know, you get you get consumed by the Yankees and, and the Mets and what. But you know, you a lot of people don't look at the broader. I mean, some do, but a lot of people don't they look at the broader fabric of the game. I mean, this is an unbelievable race what's going on. I mean, between the Rays and the A's, and you know, and uh, possibly the Indians. But I don't see the it's going to be it'll be the A's and the Rays and. uh the A's, they're both, the A's are really particularly dangerous. If you, they go on a run, I'm telling you, that would be a team I don't want to play. I don't want to play them. I don't. No. no I don't because I could say, I believe, and they, and their bullpen isn't great. I don't see their bullpen mm-hmm. as great. They've blown a lot of games. They're, but they're everyday guys, the young, the, the Chapman and Olsen, and uh, you know their shortstop had an unbelievable year. Unbelievable, I mean, uh, incredible year. So they, the, the, those Pieces is there and starting pitching is pretty decent it manages great damage does a great job there that's a pretty good t- not a pretty good team they're a very dangerous team we'll put you like that before, it's a good race good race
1: before i give you my american league yeah. story of the year um you're obviously the show of this the star of the show i should say but an unheralded star of this show is our producer engineer jason marshall wouldn't you say
2: uh, if you put a, if you really force me to, I might say that <laughs> sure.
1: Um Should we ask him what he thinks? The AL no, story of the year? No. no? You wanna ask him ask
2: him why we ask him. What's ask the it.
1: AL story of the year? What do you think,
2: Jason?
1: Uh, the AL story of the year? Yeah, do you we know have, all the AL teams? Uh, baseball is my is my thing. Yeah. I think uh, Take I, your time speaking to the day. mic. I think I think the story of the year is probably gonna be probably gonna be Jordan Alvarez and how Good, the Astros are and the juggernaut they're going to be. I think it's going to be a really
2: good playoff. I'm very excited. You agree? Crickets,
1: crickets. Uh, no.
2: <laughs> uh, do I agree? Yeah. I mean, I, 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 listen, I think it's a great story, it's, and I, th- you're, you're right. Is it a good? It's a great story. How many
1: ABs does he have? Maybe 300 uh, plus. You know, he's 27 home runs.
2: Look, they, it's if you said to me, and we're going down Astro Lane here, but are, but, yeah. but if you told me, Thanks, if you said to me that, sort of. Alvarez and Correa would be sub it's kind of been the sub category okay not that they're not good players they're really good players but it's Springer it's really Springer and and this kid now I mean you look and then you put them all together and you're like I mean, you just throw in about five other guys and you say to yourself like and this team, pitching and they p- oh, pitching is I mean Drake was doing no hitter yeah. last night I mean so as we record this I mean so I mean, it's, their starting pitching is great. Their bullpen is is all right, it's not great, but their starters go so deep. I mean, they go eight, nine, eight. So when you have that kind of depth, you don't have to worry that much about a bullpen. They are, they are, they are the team to beat.
1: Well, for me, guys, there's a lot of great stories in the American League. I was gonna pick the Twins because I didn't really think that the Twins, uh, heading into the season, were as good as they are, and they have proven to be. I was thinking maybe Boston's collapse, um, but for me, the best story in the American League is the next man up at the New York Yankees. I mean, it's person after person after person stepping up. Uh, That's my story. I want to hear, though, um, what Al thinks. Al Leiter's our guest. I want to ask him what he thinks of this uh, Yankees team. What do you think?
2: Oh, I'm sure he'd have a lot of uh, interesting answers, no doubt. I mean, and your points are well taken. The Yankees were great here. And the next man up was an incredible story. I so many Red Sox collapse. You're right. That's a great story too. How about the Twins. I mean, they came out of. Some people picked them. I, I I didn't pick them. But some people picked them too. And I couldn't understand why they were so good. They got a, an incredible run. What a run they had. And then they slowly started to fall apart. And the Indians pretty much caught them. And then the Twins managed to get far enough ahead with they, it where they're going to win the, win the division. So great story though really great story You're right these are all good stories you can't go wrong with any of them but to your point we'll take it on the last couple of stories no doubt
1: yeah all right let's get al's take on this we'll do a real quick break uh, when we come back we'll have al later hey this is chris sheeran of the yes network listen to my podcast and we're off for all the latest on the new york sports scene with guests who know the teams you love inside and out go to where you subscribe to your favorites and give it a listen
2: Welcome back to Curtain Call, John Filipelli, Kevin Sullivan. Welcome in at this time our very special guest, Al Leiter. Al played 19 years in the big leagues uh, and three-time World Series champion, uh, wonderful ambassador to the game, front office person now, uh, MLB broadcaster. And uh, Al, how are you today?
0: Good, Flip. How are you? Hello, Kevin. Hey, Al. How is everybody?
2: We're, we're well. We're doing well. Jason Marshall joins us as well. He's our engineer. So, uh,
0: all right,
2: Jason. All right, so we're all here. So here's, we'll start with this. You were, uh, you grew up a Met fan, and you signed with the Yankees. So what was that like to grow up with one team, be a fan of one team, and, you know, actually sign with the team across town? How, how, what was that about?
0: Here, let me tell you, Flip. You know why I was a Mets fan? Why? Because my father, who was born underneath the 59th Street Bridge in 1927, um, lived, in, uh, lived in New York City and then eventually moved out to uh, – to Bayshore, Islip, New York. And when the Mets started in 1962, he started to become a Mets fan because of Casey Stengel. He loved, he thought he was a hoot, he thought the whole lovable loser thing and the character that Casey was at that time, and he actually adorned and, and gravitated to the Mets because they were actually not good. And his feeling over the period of time was, he was all about the underdog. I won't get into the life and history of my father, but you know he actually didn't like the Yankees because they won all the time. <laughs> How crazy is that? So this, as people would hear off and on in my uh, arguments with Michael Kay on air when he would call me a fraud, when I was respectfully saying, while I grew up a Mets fan, it's difficult from the position, certainly as somebody who played, to really have this devoted loyalty to a particular uniform, logos, and marks when you have played for four teams. And, oh, by the way, you were drafted and signed at a high school 70, 65 miles from New York City, and three and a half years later on pitching in Yankee Stadium for the New York Yankees. So, like, throw it all out the window. I know it disappoints a lot of people who want to hate the Mets or the Mets want to hate the Yankees or anybody else wants to hate somebody. Um, but it was great, Flip. Uh, and I will tell you this, and this is where the uh, the, the friendly banter of, of fraud comes in, because I went to more I went to more Yankee games, and I actually went to more Philly games than I did either Yankee or Mets, just from where I live down in the Jersey Shore in Ocean County, in the Tom Diver area. It was much easier to get to the Veteran Stadium than it was certainly Shea and Yankee Stadium. I went to more Yankee games than Mets, so go figure. What the heck am I? I don't know.
2: I mean, you and you got your feet wet with the Yankees. I mean, you broke in with the Yankees. And I mean, and obviously, that was a great education. But speaking of educations, you move on to Toronto. Okay. And you pitched you had David Cohn, Jimmy Key, Dave Stewart, Jack Morris. Um, I'm absolutely not somebody. I mean, how about how Dave about
0: Steve? Did you say Steve? No,
2: I didn't say Steve. Was Steve still there when you got there?
0: Yes. Yes. Well, I was trading '89 for Jesse Barfield, and yes, then you right. know, then it was just a mess of injuries. So I was there early on through that nice run uh, from '89 through through '03 or '93, where we, you know, won a couple World Series, some League Championship Series, and really a lot of fun. But up look there. at the what
2: pedigree. Out. Look thing. at the pedigree of the pitchers that were part of that staff.
0: Listen, I, I, I think, you know, the things in which that you can eventually evolve as a young pitcher and certainly my, my biggest problem early on was injury, right? I had the shoulder injury, I had shoulder surgeries, I had blister problems. So while trying to get back and get healthy, yeah, there were, I mean, you know, let's start with uh, David Cohn and, 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 and the opportunity to play with Jack Marsh. He's now in the Hall of Fame and I love Dave Stewart and the way he pitched and Dave Steve, forget it. Um, terrific stuff. Uh, you mentioned Jimmy Key, just a lot of guys that if you just keep your mouth shut and you keep your ears open and you listen and watch, uh, you know, you can learn an awful lot. And I did learn a lot, even though through those two or three years of wondering if I'd ever get back, um, it actually, in a, in a very roundabout way, helped me.
2: And those teams, were no, those teams were noted for their offense, you know, Joe Carter, Alomar, et cetera. And yet, True. I mean, there was the pitching that really dominated that, that brought the championships to them.
0: Yeah, I, I think it was probably in, – in the end, look, it, the year that I actually contributed uh, in, a, in, a, in a nice way, yes, we had Dave Stewart. It was the end of, uh, of um, Jack Morris's career. Dave Steve was um, no longer with us, and Jimmy Key moved on to the Yankees. Um, but we had a young guy, in Pat Henkin that was supposed to start out in the bullpen and end up winning 19 games. We had Juan Guzman, who nobody really knew of, that emerged as one of our, our best pitchers. And, um, you know, me, Todd Stottlemyre, David Wells had left to go on to Detroit. So, you know, we thumped. I think that year, Flip, I think we had one, two, three in batting title with Olorud, Elrude, Alomar, and Molitor. So, you know, we hit at the end of the day.
1: And, of course, you played for Cito Gaston. He was the manager of that team. Um, and Flip mentioned you played 19 seasons, and Cito is just one name in a long line of great managers you played for. Jim Leland, Joe Torre, Bobby Valentine, uh, I think listeners, though, of this show, Al, want to know what was it like to play for Billy Martin.
0: <laughs> I was going to say, how are the heck is Kevin forgetting Billy Martin? <laughs> um, you know what? In truth, so I, I get to the big leagues. Uh, uh, Lou Piniella is the manager, and that was a you know when things were a bit of a mess for the Yankees. Um, the Yankee, the Mets were winning across town. Um, you know, George was, you know, trying to compete and doing everything he could to win, and you know we were just falling short. And then here comes Billy Martin. And and honestly, Kevin, I mean, it was things in which when I was a kid and I stayed home for, you know, the the one-game playoff, the Bucky Dent game up at Fenway, and, you know, all of – although that was Bob Lemon, but I think about the times of watching Billy Martin, his craziness. And all I could tell you is that Billy Martin couldn't have been nicer to me, and all of the horror stories that I've heard about him treating young players and, in particular, young pitchers – I don't know why, but he was, he, was, he was nice to me. I don't know whether he, he saw he saw maybe a lineage of, of possibly the baton being passed on from, you know, I kept hearing about Guidry to Rigetti to Leiter. Um, but he was, he, was, he was good to me.
1: I read somewhere that he asked you once to go out there and only throw fastballs. Is that true?
0: That is true. So I had a game. Well, actually, it was Joel Skinner behind the plate. And um, I'm I'm in a mess um, at Fenway, and it's a big series. It was early in the season. And um, I remember I I got in trouble. My typical give up a bloop and a couple walks. And uh, I'm battling through uh, Ellis Burks, and I'm trying to use all my pitches, and he keeps calling fastballs, and I'm shaking. And then I'm shaking, and he's putting down fastball, and I'm shaking. (laughs) And then I see Joel Skinner, like, nudging his head toward the third base dugout, which is the visiting dugout at Fenway Park. And he's like basically saying, this is coming from the bench. And Billy, now normally Billy was, he would get mad if you told him it was a fastball. So I, I threw another fastball, foul off Ellis Burks, another fastball, another foul off, and he calls a fastball again, and he hits it up on top of the speaker at center field. Oh, and uh, I give up a grand slam. I don't know. I don't think I get out of third or fourth inning. And I go into the clubhouse, and I have a couple pops, and I think I'm feeling a little bit, you know, a little, little buzzed. And I started uh, my post-game interview with Things that you probably shouldn't, you know, start getting on Billy and uh, Michael K. When he was a beat writer for the Post, looking at me, basically going, "Don't go there, don't go there." Oh wow! And, uh, he saved my you a old little buddy. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, yeah. So uh, saved uh, you again. I was.
1: <laughs> and then he called you a fraud years later.
0: Yeah, then I'm a fraud. <laughs> so, uh, I love Michael.
1: You mentioned uh, Lou Pinella, who came in after Billy Martin, and then there was Dallas Green. Who threw you out there? One game, 163 pitches. What was he thinking?
0: Yeah, that's crazy. So I, I get really annoyed when we get to the hundred pitch count, and the bells go off, and all the you know the fire drill starts with the you know guys starting to stretch and warm up and throw. When you got a guy on the mound who's got a four hitter, he's given up one run in the first inning, and he's cruising. But because he has 100 pitches, we've got to take him out. How dumb is that? However, with Dallas Green, what he said after the game, he was trying to stretch me out. 163 is. That's crazy and borderline abuse. Because I had crummy mechanics, I didn't know how to pitch. I was trying to throw the next pitch harder than the last pitch, and uh, I threw one more game. I we flew to Kansas City. Somehow, I had a decent start. I come back to New York today. Game against the White Sox. I'm not pitching. Uh, George or or um, Sid Thrift calls down the Dallas Green and they trade me during the game to Toronto for Jesse Barfield. I go up to Toronto. I pitch one game for the Blue Jays, and I have a side day in Minnesota. Bob Brenly's the backup catcher to Ernie Witt. I'm new to the team, and I couldn't reach the plate, let alone hit spots and throw at 90 miles an hour. And I remember I turned to old pitching coach Al Widmar and said, Al, I don't know what's going on, but I can't reach him. And that was the start of my mess, and I'm sure it had – a direct correlation and oh by the way guys it was a very cold april night and it was raining off and on the whole night i don't know what he was thinking but that couldn't have been good
1: no 163 pitches i think must be some sort of or near a record um but i do know you know
0: back in the day those guys used to i mean you know now we're going back when it was black and white and was on tv but those guys <laughs> used to throw every other day almost right
1: but on the flip side this is a a little cute little segue you do have a one pitch start is that right
0: one-pitch start that year in uh, – no, it wasn't that year. It was in 1988. Billy was still the manager. First pitch to Carney Lansford, fastball away. He hits a line drive, hits me in the arm, a pitching arm. I go over towards third base where it was dribbled in front of Packer Rule. I pick it up, and I throw it down the line. And it, it was in Oakland, Coliseum, and it rolls all the way down. The leadoff, Carney Lansford gets to third base. Billy comes out, and I couldn't move my arm. I couldn't go side to side with my hand. So he takes me out. Neil Allen comes in and throws, lead, preserves the runner at third, and throws a complete game shutout. But it did count as a shutout because I started the game. Oh Amazing. wow! Yeah.
2: You you move on from Toronto, Al. You go to Florida. Okay, you win a, a World Series in 1997. A, incredible year for the Marlins. Incredible year for you. And what happens is Wayne Heisiger doesn't get a new stadium, and he blows up the team and. What was that like to come off a World Series championship and realize that the owner had blown up the team after one year and that was going to be that?
0: It was awful, Flip. It was a damn shame. And I remember as the season went on, uh, Jim Leland, who was a newly hired manager from Pittsburgh, they signed him like a four-year deal or whatever it was. Um, and they knew, meaning meaning Jim Leland, Dave Dombrowski, was the general manager, uh, that Wayne already made this decision that he was done, and he didn't like baseball. He didn't understand the nuance of 162 games. I used to hear stories at Dombrowski. He would tell Dombrowski, to go to lunch with him and say, "I don't understand. You went to Cincinnati and we lost two or three, and our payroll was 68 million, and their payroll was 35. How come we didn't win every game? So he was kind of constantly having to be explained as to how you know it's not football." So, uh, yeah, no, it was terrible, and I remember right after that, we had the ceremony, and it was really terrific, because they did a, a, a nice little parade in Miami, and then a boat ride up through Fort Lauderdale, and, you know, the governor of Florida was there, and all the dignitaries, and we had a sit-down meeting with Hyzinga at his office at the old Blockbuster offices downtown Fort Lauderdale. It was a few of us, uh, Alex Fernandez and uh, Charles Johnson, Kevin Brown, a few others, and we pleaded with him. Uh, Don Smiley, the president of the team, was in you know, please just keep us together. We're, this is a really good nucleus. We might do this again, and he wasn't interested. As a matter of fact, one of his comments was that he was he lost thirty million dollars, and if we would give back certain sort of <laughs> salaries, he would he would keep us. That's what he said. <laughs> so. Uh, won the one the union wouldn't allow it because you can't you know you can't do that but it was uh, it was kind of humorous so wow. yeah he was he was he was done it was a shame because it, look at the 1998 All Star Game I think there were five ex Marlins that were at that All Star Game that
2: oh, was a great team no doubt and it, it had yeah, to be had as you as you explained it was terribly frustrating but you know listen you you uh, you accomplished that you climbed that mountain move on to the Mets and this is the team that you you grew up uh, was your team growing up and now you're pitching for them, and they had a lot of pieces. They really did, but I think that there was always a question of they always needed that, that extra leader, somebody to put them over the top, and you always were known as a leader. I know you don't want to admit to that, but you are. You were always a leader. You were great in the clubhouse. That was a piece I believe the Mets really needed, and obviously you got there, and you, you really were a huge contributor to the success of the Mets in the years that followed, and you you know, you know got them into the Subway Series as well.
0: Well, thank you, Flip, and uh, I—, I I tried and I did think of, you know, if the entire room, if there were a few guys that either a weren't comfortable or happy, you know, it could permeate and ruin the room. So first and foremost, Johnny Franco, who's a dear friend, he was the, leader. he was the guy that can pull together all factions of a team, hitters, pitchers, starters, relievers, uh, African-Americans, Latinos, white guys. You know, we had a really good group and, um, but what we were missing, uh, you know, we were missing the star, the superstar that had to compete across to what the Yankees were doing right in their heyday of their, mm-hmm. of their great years. And, uh, you know, the trade for Mike Piazza just, you know, took us to that, hey, we're not just the little engine that could. We have a, 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 a true superstar, uh, eventually Hall of Fame, Mike that really propelled us to not think that we were the little engine that could, but we can come in and, and you know, beat up on some guys. But, but, but a team yeah, coalesces. No, I, I, I'm a big believer of that. That's why I like sabermetrics and analytics. I get it. I'm not, I'm not dumb about it. But, you know, it's hard to quantify, you know, for all of us in the room to feel good about what we're doing, to have the confidence, self-esteem, et cetera. Is our mind right? Are we happy, generally happy? Um, you know, and I'll take those players that are really confident – you know, on a given night than somebody who doubts themselves or doesn't feel like he belongs or he's not wanted, et cetera.
1: It's
2: one thing, the success on the field, I mean, Piazza was obviously a major, major piece of the success of the Mets, no doubt. But a team coalesces not only about what happens on the field but what happens in the clubhouse, and that doesn't get enough attention when we talk about what makes a team successful. Chemistry is so important, and Johnny Franco, obviously a huge contributor as well. But, Al, don't don't understate your you mitigate your presence in that clubhouse because I've seen you in clubhouses, and I—I I was working on the game of the week at NBC and Fox. I mean, I've—I've I've been in enough clubhouses, and I know what chemistry means. And I mean, I don't know that there's a better teammate in the game than you.
0: Thank you, Flip. I—I—I I, uh, I, I really appreciate that. That means a lot. Didn't make the Hall of Fame. I did some cool. I had some good moments. Um, made a couple All-Star teams, but you know that that that, that did matter to me. Um, of knowing that, you know, it wasn't just about my start every fifth day. I was very cognizant of, you know, when I wasn't pitching uh, to be there, cheer on the guys, sit in the dugout, et cetera, and uh, be, you know, supportive. And I realized also that I had a responsibility. And when I got to that front-end starter paid like a top guy at the time, I had a responsibility to the organization, my teammates, the front office, everybody. The fans, you know, I was getting paid good money to to go out and, and compete and, and give it my best effort. I always felt in, in a rotation that I was in to have everybody compete for being the best. And you know, I always thought, boy, if you were good, and the next guy was good, and I was good. We're rolling. That's great.
2: I want to so, ask you. Yeah. I want to ask you this. Um, you, yeah, now you're at the Mets, and you grew up uh, obviously a Met fan as you as you stated i wanted i wanted to talk about seaver a little bit I mean, he was your hero he was your idol growing up i know he wasn't pitching uh he wasn't on the mets when, when you got to the mets but having said that he meant a lot to you and you know tom has gone through a lot of trials and tribulations has, has been has been has been well documented now and he's meant a lot to you and he's meant a lot to me in my life as well for different reasons um do you have a good tom seaver story you'd like to share with our with our listeners
0: can I – does it entail drinking wine or no wine? It's
2: whatever story you consider to be a really good Tom Seaver story. <laughs> we can talk about wine, anything you want. <laughs> it's, it's... All
0: right. So, Flip, you know, you know Tom Seaver. Yes. And, um, you know, listen, he was, he, he was God to me as a kid, you know. It was just everything about him and then Nancy, and, you know, just the whole mystique and aura of him. But actually, going back to it, I don't know if Kevin, you asked or Flip, you asked about the 163 pitches. You know who was doing the broadcast that night with Phil Rizzuto? Tom. Tom Seaver. And I have a I have a I have a uh, a piece of that broadcast. And I don't know who was doing it back then. It might have been sports channel or something. I don't know what that was.
2: Picks probably.
0: Um who was it? W P I X? So I have Tom Seaver, I come I come I'm coming out for the ninth inning, and I think Rizzuto I don't think who was w could it have been yeah, Rizzuto was definitely there. Rizzuto,
2: Rizzuto. White and uh, and Tom, I would think.
0: Yeah, it might have been white. And and the first thing Rosetto says, well, I find this pretty amazing. Lighter's still out there. And Seaver makes a comment of, I don't understand this. This is really puzzling or something along that line. And then I go from his clip to when Dr. Andrews did my arthroscopic shoulder surgery where you you got the scope, (laughs) the the visual of uh, the surgery. With Seaver saying that. That was the first time that I actually got a chance to get close to Tom you know, being around, and I was so enamored with him, and I would ask him a lot of questions. But fast forward to the Mets. He used to come in when he was doing a game, and I would be pitching, and he'd come up, and he'd always take the lineup card from me. He knew I had it because so, it was always in my back pocket. I'd go take hits in batting practice. I'd come back in, here comes Seaver, And he'd pull the lineup card out. And then I started getting to a point where I, I was looking forward to him when he did was doing my game. I would have the lineup card for him. And, you know, whatever, Braves, Chipper Jones, Andrew Jones, Brian Jordan, whoever, whoever we were playing that night. And he'd look at it and he goes, From the fifth inning on, he'd point to the lineup, he goes, He's not gonna beat me. And then he'd go to the seventh inning on. Seventh inning on, these two guys wouldn't beat him. And it always resonated with me, resonated with me, guys, that here's the great Tom Sieber, Hall of Famer, terrific career, to say the least, that he also recognized in lineups of not allowing certain guys to beat him. And, you know, we would go into like a whole Uber level of of pitching sequences and quadrants, all this other stuff. There was one night after dinner, with maybe a couple glasses of wine, he took a on the big napkin and and drew a strike zone, and you know quartered the strike zone and explained sequences of different pitches, you know, because he had a good good explosive fastball slider primarily, and I just you know I'm looking at him like I'm like the 12 year old who's just like you know, you know, (laughs) crazy about the guy, you know, Um, and you know numerous on the airplane. I remember he'd come back, and he used to carry a little case. And, you know, of course, you know, he has the vineyard. And, you know, I'd come up, and I'd sit next to him, and just, he would just go about stories. And um, those are the memories that I have uh, of really spending time with Tom Seaver. He, he, was, he was,
2: is, uh, it, it was an incredible person, and he was a hard person to get to know. He, wasn't, he didn't suffer fools at all. And, you know, you really had to work to get to know him. And But if you got through that barrier, because he was actually a very private person, if you got through that barrier, you could not have asked for a better friend. I mean, he became a great friend to me and my family. And, I mean, I have stories, you have stories. But, I mean, that's the thing. That, that is my lasting takeaway. I mean, I grew up watching him as well, and he, he was one of the great pitchers of all time. And But the, the person that he actually was, what well, to me, was a, as... as on that same level of greatness because uh, you, I was able to see him break that barrier and get to know him for who he was.
0: Well, you know, he, and he, very, very confident guy, I'll, I'll say. right? Extremely. Like he'll, he'll put, Extremely. Yeah, he'll put you in your place. You know, I he have, threw a ball I at my son
2: once, Al. He threw a ball. My, my son was trying to learn how to hit, and uh, it was like Little League, whatever, he was doing really poorly. So my wife says, Genesis, you know, take. Let's maybe Tom can help him. So I called Tom I tell him my son's Johnny had a struggle he says all right well take him up bring him over the house I bring him over the house he sets him up he's at the he's got his stance he's there throws a pitch he hits him so I said I said Tom it's my son you hit him he goes, he's leaning over the plate that's my area he's got he's got to learn how to, where he can stand and <laughs> where he can't stand I said he's even competitive he's got my my son was like seven you know what he, he he hit him I mean it was like but that's the competitive that's who Tom Seaver was and is't and incredible great
0: great Oh, uh, that's yeah. funny. yeah um well you know and i'll, and I'll say this and very confident yeah you know I love the guy but uh, he invited me and laurie and the kids out to his his vineyard in his home on calistoga the, in napa and i go in it's just it's just tom and nancy and my family are there and we spent the we spent the whole day showed off the vineyard and the grapes and then the pool set around the pool. But I went in his office, and he was kind of you know, walking around his house, whichever. And I walked in his office. And, you know, for a guy that did so much, it was tastefully done. And really the, really the most prominent and not many more items displayed was really only that he had his uh, three Cy Youngs on the wall. And he had a p- picture of, uh, of he and, and uh, Gil Hodges, who he absolutely adored. Yes. And you know a couple of late Was his manager? I was it, Yeah, yeah. Go Hodges, you know managers six and nine nine. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know uh, I was I was taken aback because I figured he would have had a shrine of you know just you know reams of things, but he really didn't. Going back to the
1: beginning, Al, at the top of the show, Flip mentioned that you got your start with the Yankees. In fact, you were drafted by the Yankees, and if you fast forward a couple decades, as luck would have it, your son was drafted by the Yankees. Okay. How cool is that? was that to have both of you drafted by the same team?
0: Yeah, very. Um, I, listen, I didn't know what, what uh, Damon Oppenheimer was going to do or slash Brian Cashman, but I did know after my son, who you know, is a good pitcher, uh, we told everybody that he wasn't going to sign, uh, he's going to go to Vanderbilt. And there were about 10 or 11 teams because he was, he, he was going to be a first-rounder, guys. Um, but, you know, education mattered. He wanted to go to college at Vanderbilt. So I wasn't sure. I had no idea which team, and I had no idea, obviously, what round. So when I got the call uh, that the Yankees in the 20th round, I just I thought it was cool with respect to, just as you said, Kevin. You know, I was drafted. I, of course, signed. And here the Yankees ended up, you know, in a, in a very nice gesture, um, you know, drafting them, and it was, you know, Actually, the 20th round is pretty early. Often they, they make these picks in the 30s to, you know, 40. So uh, I was a bit surprised, but uh, that was a very nice uh, gesture for sure.
1: And they knew, the Yankees knew going in that your son was going to Vanderbilt. Is that right? Yeah,
0: yeah. Just- I, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, it was it was clear. But, you know, I think from my understanding, in addition to just a nice gesture, it also creates what is viewed as, you know, a part of your life, part of your story, part of your history and connect-the-dots kind of thing. And, um, you know, uh, you know, the Yankees will forever have been part of my son's um, baseball career, right, no matter what happens moving forward, and a very significant part with respect to a high school senior getting drafted by a major league team.
1: Yeah, a real classy move. The Yankees also uh, drafted Jack's Del Barton teammate Anthony Volpe. Have you seen him play, and what can you tell us about him?
0: Have I seen him play, Kev? I've seen him him play a lot. Um, Jack and Anthony are good friends. They run the USA team together. Anthony Volpe is a – I I hate going to the old school, new school, because it drives me nuts. He he plays the game what I think is the way it should be played. This kid is a hustler. He's a worker. He loves the game. Um, He grinds it. Skill-wise, I, I, obviously there's a lot of growth and, and size and development, um, but he's going to be a kid. He's going to make it to big leagues, I have no doubt in my mind. Uh, I don't know where, what position, and, uh, you know, what role kind of scenario, but he is a hard worker that's going to have every facet. And I, and I said this about Anthony. He's the type of kid when you watch him, you like him a lot, and the more you watch him, you fall in love and I think that's what happened with the Yankees. Uh, you know, all their, all their scouting uh, cross-checkers and everybody, that's all the line.
2: You moved into broadcasting, and you were a very successful broadcaster. Tell me why you enjoyed broadcasting so much.
0: Part of it, I think internally, I have like a teaching mind. I have a sense that I want to help, and I think with a headset on, to never forget the 10-year-old on the couch, you have a chance to, you know, albeit in in a very short snippet, to give some sort of facet that is not only analysis of what just happened that comes back on a replay, but a teaching opportunity for, you know, somebody who's watching with mom or dad and and little Joey is sitting on the couch watching as a 10-year-old. So I think that part of it is attractive. And then I just thought... You know, listen, you know, aside from coaching or being day-to-day in the clubhouse in uniform, it's the next best thing for me. And so long as it's fun and you have a good group and the guys next to you, you know, it's playful and you like each other, man, that I can't think of a better a better way to stay in the sport if you get an opportunity to broadcast games.
2: And you had great chemistry in the booth. I mean, and, and among the people that you worked the best with, you had a great friendship and relationship with Michael Kay.
0: Michael Kay's been a friend for well, when I first met him in 1987. Uh, I don't have to tell you guys. You know, he's a great guy, and to this day, off and on, you know, he's we we've, we've communicated whether uh, while with the S Network or when I was a player, uh, while with the Yankees, Toronto, Marlins. Like he followed my whole my my whole way. As a matter of fact, I'll, I'll give this. And Michael, I think I shared this a few times on the air, but I felt and feel this way about Michael K. When I uh, finally got my first opportunity to become a free agent, it was in 1995 after a pretty good season with the Blue Jays and looked like the Blue Jays were going kind of the other way at the time, I, ha- I had two phone calls. Well, I made a couple more than that, but I made a phone call to Dave Rigetti, a couple others, and Michael K. for advice. And Michael, we sat on the phone because it, it came to like the eleventh hour and I had to make a decision. And it was really difficult because at the time, Pat Gillick, who was with the Blue Jays, went to the Baltimore Orioles. And they it was like two years after their new stadium. It was heyday. You guys remember that. Sure. Sell out, sell out, sell out. And Michael basically talked to me, I was between either the Marlins or the Baltimore Orioles. And Michael, by the you know, hour into the conversation, yeah, 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 yeah. Baltimore, Baltimore. He's given all the reasons why the Orioles be great in this net. Hang up, and uh, I think Mike finds out the next day that I picked the Marlins. So, uh, but my point about that story is that he, you know, he he's a friend. He's somebody that I leaned on.
2: And you and you guys were uh, were wonderful together. Great together, and you know, and also you had you know Paul and Coney and the guys. I mean, they're fun to work with. I mean, to uh, I mean, do you ever think Paul O'Neill would be a broadcaster?
0: Um, no, I mean, not that I didn't, I, no, not that I don't. I mean, th- there's certain guys now. Hey, did you ever think Mike Schmidt and I'm not putting Paul. No, Mike Schmidt. <laughs> no. I mean, Mike Schmidt. <laughs> no, that's why right. There's a, there's a couple other buddies of mine now that like recently retired and they call it. And I'm like, wait, didn't you like hate the media? Now you want to do, you want to be part of it? Yeah. He's like, Oh, it's TV. It's not media. I'm like, well, you might take that, but everybody else. didn't. Think that. It's funny. Um, okay. Yeah. No, listen, Paulie. Uh, listen, he's the modern day Phil Rizzuto. He's the warrior. He's beloved by every Yankee fit, uh, fan, and uh, I think he does a great job. He,
2: you know, he's become a pretty decent broadcaster too, and he's a lot of fun to be around and to work with.
0: But here, let me say this, Flip, because I, I do think there's a lot of players and. I actually took offense to it because my first chance to ever do a game actually was with Fox, and it was the 2003 LCS Cubs-Marlins mm-hmm. and Steve Bartman, mm-hmm. uh, and I was with Tommy Brenneman and and, um, and uh, Steve Lyons. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the mindset of like, hey, you know baseball, just throw your headset on. and talk No, mm-hmm. no, 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 no. You're going to be exposed just because you know baseball. You plop some dude in the booth who only knows about When he played in the 60s or 70s, people are going to be snoring by the fifth inning. So that whole thing about, you know, baseball, throw the headset on, just tell stories and, you know, tell them what you know about the game. You better be prepared. And that's one thing. And I got a knock. Everybody said, oh, I had all this notes and I took all this, you know, I wrote a lot of crap down. No, no, no. I felt like, let me over-prepare. I owe it to the viewer to know that I'm bringing something that is going to be relevant and pertinent. And important to give some insight, not only just to, like how to throw a slider or what the guy's thinking on a hit and run, but like who are these players? The Yankees, the Cleveland Indians are coming in. Who are these guys? What are they doing? Who's cold? Who's hot? Who said what? Well, you know, you gotta work. Got work. You gotta work. You no, well, no. Do you have not, to work? No, only Do
2: you have to work out? You you have to have you have to get produced too, because I, I must tell you, I mean, I've seen it, I've seen it time and time again, especially my former, my years before. Yes. You know, you hire a big name uh, athlete to go into the booth and, you know, some were better suited for that career than others. but, But at the end of the day, it was not only them putting in the work, but people also in the truck trying to you know, get on the same page with, with the athlete, the former athlete, and say, hey, this is how we do this, and the red light goes on, it means this, and, you know, that's too long. Try to keep your sentences shorter. Try to, you know, give them, give, critique them and work with them too because it's not a business, even though they did a lot of interviews when they were players, it's a different kind of business. And you're asking people who've never sat in a booth and had a headset on, had people talking in their ear, graphics flying all over the place, replays here, that there, other people talking over you, in you, through you, whatever. And that's a lot to learn and to, uh, not to absorb in a short period of time. So you have to have yeah. people in the truck who go to work with you. So you get you, it's 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 give and take. It's back and forth. But but it is there is a process to this.
0: But I'll say this too, Flip. And you're you're a legend, and you did you sat in that seat, and made those decisions in the truck. It is a it is a different ball game for everybody involved. That is there daily for the 162 game schedule. I know Fox does a few games and ESPN helps out teams like the Yankees and the high profile teams. But you're doing, you're grinding every day. And that's the constant reminder of making tonight's game special. This is going to be our game seven. And you have to play tricks on your mind, you know, tricks with yourself with respect to, because tonight somebody may be watching the old Joe DiMaggio thing. Somebody's coming to this game. It might be the first and last time they ever watch it. So tonight is game seven. And that's a lot different than doing the game of the week or, you know, than the following year from '03. uh, Michael Weissman called me along with uh, Ed Gordon and they had me go in the '04 4 booth with uh, McCarver and Joe Buck. And, and I did the '04, 4 you know, the, the Red Sox. Oh, sorry to bring that up. But I did that game when uh, the Red Sox, be, you know, came back to beat the Yankees. But that's, you know, that's really special moments. And to, you know, do the day-to-day that, that television people do for uh, – for a baseball game, you know, that that's that's a that's a grind, it is. But you gotta remind yourself, hey, tonight we're gonna be great.
2: I'm gonna ask you one more broadcasting question. I'll do this quickly. If you could be behind the mic for just one moment in baseball history, one 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 moment, one game, any anything history of the game. What moment would it be that you'd like to have been in the booth for to broadcast?
0: Wow. Uh Oh my God, Flip! That's a great question. I, I'm I'm thinking that the, the the iconic gasping moment. The you know I happen to be, and I'm only going to use it because I'm trying to buy some time here. But the Joe Carter moment, and you know the Tom Cheek, touch touch 'em all. Joe, you'll never hit a bigger home run. And he's running around to to walk off a, a World Series championship with us. You know I was in the dugout at the time, jumping on Joe Carter. Like I would think, that gasping moment would be would be you know. Those kind of walk-offs, as opposed to yeah, what I'd like to call one is Sandy Koufax's no-hitters. Yeah, that would be great. Sure. But I think with the emotional aspect of everybody involved, the sadness of the loser and the euphoric moment of the winner, like like pick those four or five walk-off kind of spots. That 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 would be really cool because it, it consumes you. It's intoxicating.
1: Before we let you go, Al, I want to ask quickly about this year's team, uh, particularly the pitching. Uh, heading into the postseason, what do you think Yankees fans can expect out of Luis Severino? Uh, he's obviously looked good of, lit, of late. Can they expect uh, more of that in the postseason?
0: Yeah, I, I have no doubt that Severino – listen, you, you know they're, they're building blocks, right? So Gary, he, you know, he double-A game a few weeks back. Uh, he went 50, 50 pitches, uh, and I think it was against Redding. And then his next game he went to 60-something against Bowie uh, when he was with Trenton. Uh, and then you know the the, this, the the blocks are building up. And I, what his last game? He went to 80, I think it was. The, the good thing about with Severino, I, I look for two. I look for two things: is he remotely close to hitting his, his, his spots, and does do we see the 97, 98? And we have check check. Um, so clearly that's there. Um, I think with the luxury that the Yankees have with the bullpen that they have when rested and certainly going into a five-game series, what looks like, what, I guess it be Minnesota now, right? Um, looks like it, yeah. Severino, I have no problem, no problem. Paxton's pitching one, Severino's pitching two for me. And, um, you know, say no more. And, I, and I'm, not, I'm not having to lean on him. He doesn't have to go 100, but he's going to give me solid, solid five and maybe even a little more.
2: What does the future hold for Outlider? What's left for you to do?
0: <laughs> uh, when do I go out back and they shoot me? <laughs> 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 All right, he's done. Take back. Um, you know, I, I uh, I'm enjoying what I'm doing now. Uh, you know, I, this advisory role with the Mets. I'm appreciative of uh, of them giving me this chance to. And again, back to like, why do I like TV? You know, getting down, I really enjoy going to the minor leagues. I've been to the, to a few of the affiliates and talking, pitching and baseball and giving my stories and trying to, you know, give some sense of it's not easy and I know it's difficult and, you know, give some hopefully some good advice and maybe a, a, a pointer here or there. I, I do like that flip. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know. Maybe we can make a couple billion dollars and buy a baseball team. That would be cool. Yeah.
2: Uh- I like that. I like the couple of billion dollar part.
0: <laughs> yeah, we got to find a billion. If <laughs> we,
2: yeah, we could find a few billion, we'll be all right, Al. Yeah. Right, well, Al, uh, Kevin and I and our listeners, we really, enjoyed, we really enjoyed this. Thank you for taking part of your day to do
0: this. And, well, here, so let me do this, gentleman. and I don't have to patronize you, okay. but thank you for uh, bringing me into the booth uh, 12 years ago-ish, Uh, ish, uh in uh, 2006, when I had n- uh, no idea that it would have been as long and, and fun as it was. And, um, you know, you trusted me. I, I, I had like a couple moments in television, and, and I really appreciated uh, you giving me the opportunity, really.
2: Well, you more than justified uh, that call, and uh, you're a great guy to be around, and uh, we miss you, at yes, very much. So, uh, anyway, thank you for your time today, Al, and I'll talk to you soon. Kevin, I say so. Bye bye
1: well flipped, no surprise, but some great stories by Al Leiter, right?
2: He's a great storyteller. Uh, he, um, he's got a great sense of humor, and he's one of the most likable uh, players I've ever been around. And uh, as a broadcaster, he, he became a pretty good broadcaster. I, I mean, I, the thing about him, though, he's so relatable. He's so, he's so honest. He's so much fun and his heart is so, he so wears his heart on his sleeve. I mean, he would have been anything he wants to do in life, he will be successful, I'd have no doubt.
1: He will. It's that he just oozes charisma and, and personality. And if we wanted, we could have uh, talked to him for another 60 minutes. He's got great stories. It felt like four hours. I mean, it felt like four hours? <laughs> because
2: it's it's, it's Al. I mean, Al, can, Al can just run with the football. I mean, he could go. I know I'm mixing my metaphors here, but I'm just telling Al could. Uh, Al is just, I could listen to him, Al forever.
1: My favorite was him uh, talking about Dallas Green, stretching him out in April for 163 <laughs> pitches. I'm still scratching my head.
2: <laughs> you know, and it's funny because, I mean, obviously everything now is 100 pitches or starters. They make 100 pitches. It's, they, they, the, the rockets go off. They celebrate. It's a great deal to get 100 pitches. But he's right. I mean, back in the day, the Kofaxes, you know, this, the, the, the Juan Marichals, the Spawns, the Palmers, the Catfish Hunters, all those guys, there was no pitch count. They just did uh, Jimmy Cott. They just went on forever.
1: No, it sounds like Al has no time for a pitch count.
2: No, I don't think so. Don't Just think like
1: so. Uh, you were saying Tom Seaver doesn't suffer fools.
2: No, uh, Tom uh, certainly didn't suffer any fools, but uh, Tom was equal. I mean, that was he. That was some great stuff on Seaver.
1: It really was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like how he asked permission if he could talk about wine. <laughs> yeah,
2: I like that. It's a <laughs> podcast. You have to
1: ask permission. Just <laughs> say sort to go. Yeah, that's right. Tom has some uh, wineries. Am I right?
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, Calistoga, California. He's got his own label and uh, – uh, that's what he always wanted to do. I mean, he, when he in Greenwich, he had a vineyard that, uh, you know, was uh, a great attempt at a vineyard, put it like that. But if anybody could pull that off of Greenwich, it would have been Tom, and it, he did. So, but he really wanted to get really, uh, he really wanted to expand that. So, he moved out to Calistoga, California, wine country, and, you know, got into business and became very successful, uh, you know, running winery.
1: Well, before the break, we promised we were going to talk about a bunch of things, among them uh, your time in Detroit in 1984. We'll get there. We're going to talk about some managerial openings. We're going to do our History of Yes segment. Um, before we do, I want to remind everybody, if you like what you're listening to, please rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. That's the best way you can help us. And uh, on Twitter, please follow us at Yes. And speaking of Twitter, over this past week, we had a Twitter poll. We asked our followers, do you think DJ LeMahieu will win the batting title? Sixty percent of them said yes. Obviously, we're talking to one hundred percent Yankees fans, mm-hmm. so we are. So, in reality, that would probably be twenty uh, percent yes. Obviously, it doesn't look like it's going to happen at this point.
2: No, but I mean, he—I mean, what a great run he had at it, and what a fabulous year he, he's had. I mean, he, he hes in contention. He won't—he won't be the American League most valuable player, but he's going to finish in the top probably three. So that's pretty amazing. when you consider all things considered, and what a. Uh, in that lineup that is so it's got so much talent for him to stand out the way he did it, for him to contribute at so many positions that he contributed I usually when you use the word utility I'm not saying I'm not downgrading the word utility but usually it means you know a guy who's you know in the club and he's he's he plays all these different positions and he could get through all these different positions but doesn't excel he excels at every place you put him he excels wherever he hit him in the lineup he excels if you put him on the field he excels he's a great teammate i mean he's he'll go down as one of the best free agent signings the Yankees have ever made
1: Agreed. And it's funny when you think about opening day, he wasn't even, he didn't have a spot. They <laughs> told him, bring a stuff. bunch of gloves. Mm-hmm. He brought a yeah. bunch of gloves right. and he used them all. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris Sheeran and I, Chris Sheeran of the And we're Off podcast, we're talking about LeMahieu a little bit earlier in the week. And just going back to when the Yankees signed him this off season, how Yankees fans were scratching their heads. And now look at it.
2: You, you know, and I know there are a lot of people that, that scratched their heads, but you know, if you, I mean, I, I I mean, I obviously follow, you do too, we follow the game extensively. So if you follow the game extensively, you realize that what he did in Colorado was, I mean, he had some pretty good years in Colorado. He was a solid player. But, I mean, you took a solid player, I mean, won a batting title one year, and you put him in, he just flourished in New York. He went from being a very good player to a terrific player. And that issue doesn't happen. I mean, it, it, he just did. He just, he just exploded here. So, I mean, he got a lot of opportunity to play different positions. And maybe because that lineup is so deep, it takes sort of some of the pressure off. You know, when you're in a team like Colorado, they don't have one to nine. They don't have a circular lineup. They need have a circular lineup. So that takes sort of the pressure off of a lot of the players because if you, you pass the baton, if you will, you pass the baton to someone sitting next to you. I mean, the Yankees are so deep in that lineup. It just makes everybody better because of, because of their depth.
1: Switching gears a bit, uh, I want to go to a new segment. We're calling it In the Truck. I think one of the things, Flip, that sets us apart is your decades and decades in the business, your decades in the truck. And earlier this week, I asked, hey, do you have a crazy truck story? And that's kind of where this came up in my head with this new segment. That and Jason Marshall, actually our audio engineer, uh, were brainstorming. Um, Give me a crazy story. I know you had Detroit in 1984. A,
2: a number of, uh, oh my God, I tried to find a crazy story. There's a lot of them. I mean, I've had a lot of crazy things happen to me in the truck. Uh, I was in a riot, uh, a full-blown riot, actually, in Detroit when the Yankees, the Yankees, i right, When the the, the uh, World Detroit won the World Series. They beat San Diego in five games. It was 84, and I was in a truck, and uh, there was a riot. I mean, the, the fans celebrated they got very exuberant in their celebration and they started uh rocking things and uh, and throwing things and one of the things they were rocking was the mobile unit the truck so the truck was going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and i was inside of it with other people obviously there was quite a few of us in there and it was that was scary i mean because you didn't know how that was going to end i mean was so the truck it's going to take a lot to tip a mobile unit over but this thing was swaying we were swaying and i you know you felt it and and it was you know it took a while for you know the police and to get everything under control, but it was wild. I mean, those celebrations when teams win, it's it's almost universal. I mean, uh, when a team wins and they're at home, it usually sets off a wild celebration, obviously, but sometimes those celebrations go a bit too far. I think the Detroit one probably went a bit too far for sure. You think? <laughs> I do. I'm trying to be nice here. <laughs> I'm trying to calm this thing down, but it was crazy, and that was a crazy night. I don't understand.
1: Sure. So the truck is yep. not like Yankee Stadium now where it's t- tucked away. The no, truck no, was no, actually no. on the street? Yeah, we're on the street.
2: street. Yeah, they, we'd tuck away. We were in the Old Tiger State, It was no place to tuck. It's <laughs> <We're> just outside, <laughs> or on the street. I mean, and, and, and you know, it's the security back then was, you know, it's 1984. Security then was like, you know, four or five, you know, policemen around. And that's uh, four or five policemen, you know, against a crowd of 1000s is not going to uh, be able to control that. So there wasn't great crowd control back then. I Where's mean, there the mayor on that? Of, I have no idea where the mayor was. He certainly wasn't in that truck. Jeez. That I could tell you. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, it was crazy time and, and, and craziness. But listen, I mean, everything you go back in the day, you have to sort of remember a lot of this was pre, obviously, pre nine eleven. Must many more many many years before 9/11. So there wasn't that emphasis on security and, and that there is today. Not to, not to say that people weren't mindful of it; they were. But at a certain point, when we have thousands of people celebrating, you know, I, I tell you, Monday the NFL is like hands down unbelievable. The Yankees stay, and they do a great job too, by the way. But but the Super Bowl. I've been to Super Bowl many many times. Take my kids to go try to go every year. That experience where everything is such lockdown and everything is so, you don't even know there's security. You know, you see them, but you don't really see them. They blend in, but they have everything under control. You couldn't take a misstep without 12 officers of the law finding you. That's how intense and how thorough that security is. you know, I'm not saying the World Series doesn't, have, all those events have to have security, and they do. Obviously, post 9-11, they all do. But the, I'm telling you, the NFL is like, to me, is like the, is the league leader, is the sport leader in terms of security, but uh, big event security.
1: Well, it's probably a little bit easier. They only have 16 games a season.
2: Right. But, and they got one game. They know it's going to be played. So they could set a, a year in advance. They could start talking about what our security is going to be. They, that's true. That, that, that's a very good point. The, the other, obviously, the sports can't do that. They know where the game is going to be played they know two, three years in advance. So they could, they could target that security. And of course, they've done it so many times. They just sort of take the same group, the same measures and roll them over. And, and that's why that is as, as locked down as it is. But again, the other sports have, have, do a great job as well. I'm not saying that you, you should never have to go to a sporting event and worry about your safety. You, you shouldn't have to. You know, we live in crazy times. All kinds of things can happen at any given time. We all know that. And one of the things we talk about it, yes, as always, we talk about it anywhere to ever happen, you know. What, I've been in those you, meetings. You yeah, make sure that you you're, know you're, you're, uh, you know where to go and what to do because it's you know that's the thing you need to have. Is see, the most important thing is that people try to stay calm. If something would ever happen, just try to stay calm. I was in a stadium, a couple of, Super, Bowl a couple of years ago, and they lost power, and it was uh, and it was uh, it was the Ravens were playing the Ravens and the Forty Nine ers, I think, it was the Super Bowl, and so the power went down and the whole building shut down. Boom, all everything went down. So in that in that moment you say so like, what's going to happen what's that about oh my, oh my it's a terror thing It's the first thing that comes to your mind of it's a terror situation and to the credit and I, a lot of people had that look on their face I looked around I saw it but nobody nobody ran nobody overreacted everybody stayed where they were supposed to stay in their seats and until they heard something because no, there wasn't a mass panic as my point because there could have been. Something like that. Somebody, oh, somebody would do is yell something. Oh my God! And everybody would have headed for the exits. Who knows what would have happened? But everybody stay calm and collected, and that's the most important thing you have to remember. If you're ever in a situation like that, you got to stay calm. Stay calm. That's the, you. If you lose control, and I'm sure everybody around you is gonna start losing control, and that's the one thing you don't want to have. Even in a truck, a situation like that happens. You lose control, you lose the whole truck. Everybody, you know. So you got to make sure you're in, in, in control, and everybody stays calm.
1: For our listeners out there, I don't know if they realize how great this peek behind the curtain really is. Um, I can tell you, I've been in the meetings. Flip says to the production team, first thing you do is find out where the exits and talk to the security team in case something goes wrong, right?
2: Yeah, Pri, you talk to the security team and find out what the plan is to evacuate where 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 do you go what do you do cuz the last thing you want to do is be. that's why you're in a hotel folks and you see you know where those exit signs are i mean you say what do i i'm telling you anything ever happens you you don't have time to go out in the hall where's the exit you got to know where it is so when you're checking in a hotel you go up to your room whatever you do make sure you know where the exits are it's really important i mean i, I know it sounds ridiculous and all oh, of course you do you know what? so I, if i asked people if i took a poll right now how many people know where the exit they wouldn't know most of them wouldn't know you really need to know that for your own safety.
1: Well, let's move on to the dot, 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 et cetera, et cetera segment, Flip. The name uh, came from you. You can have full credit for that one, dot, 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 et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> Thanks.
2: Thanks. Of all the names, <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that. That's it.
1: Uh, for uh, named the name to Titanic, too. You know, it's, <laughs> tell me here. For new listeners, this is kind of a uh, potpourri. We kind of just jump around a little bit, move fast, different topics in the baseball world. The first one I want to talk about are there are three managerial openings currently. Um, we're talking about San Diego, San Francisco, and Kansas City. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think maybe there'll be some more? Obviously, there always are. Who are you eyeing?
2: Well, I mean, I, I look, I, I, I'm not in their front offices. It's tough for me to say this, but I, I mean, I don't know how Joe Madden is going to survive what happened in, in Chicago. I mean, I think his contract is up anyway, and... Uh, I think that Madden was great. I think he delivered that World Series, helped deliver the championship to them. He and Theo are there to get a great job, but they haven't won in subsequent years, and it may be time for a change. And losing the six in a row that they lost at the end, and, and, and gotten swept by the Cardinals. I mean, that was that was the nail in the coffin for them. And Not making the playoffs. I think that's going to be hard to swallow. They're going to start a television network soon, uh, their own television network, Marquee. It's called. So. I got to believe that they're going to make a change. And, you know, it could be Joe Girardi. Joe Girardi could wind up with that job. I was just going to say to somebody. He's from from the area, you know, with the Northwestern. I know that the job would would greatly interest him. I mean, I I would see that that would be a fit, possibly, yeah.
1: Is Theo the kind of guy who would employ a Girardi, meaning that type of um, aggressiveness that Girardi has?
2: Uh, I think the paradigm has changed from, you know, the, it should be the managers having much more say. The general managers put several of the team to whatever. But the managers, once they got that, the, the, they sort of went and did their, their thing. You know, now it's there's so many sabermetrics. The front office is, you know, very, very, very data-driven, data-driven, and more than any, any other time. So managers, you've looked at the managers have been hired. So that they're all young. They all need to sort of embrace that data philosophy, that sabermetrics philosophy, and because that's the game right now, it is, it's being driven by the general managers of running the game now, not the managers, the general managers. So any managers you hire is, yes, he's got a job to do in the game. He's going to manage, but he's got to look at all the data that's given him. and He's got to be able to use that data to, you know, help to get the results that the front office believes they'll get given the data that they have. So that's a, that's a challenge. And I don't know that uh, the guys from the old school who, you know, I don't know how readily they would adopt or have adopted to the, that new way of doing business.
1: How about Queens? Does Callaway make it?
2: I, you know, I wouldn't think so. Uh, I mean, uh, Van Wagenen is probably going to want his own person. They were very close to to making that change. Callaway, you know, and then then the Mets had an incredible six weeks. I mean, they just had a great six weeks. They put themselves right back in the thing, and then they faded at the end. Is that going to be enough? I don't think that will be enough. To I think they'll they'll probably go shopping, and you know, Madden might be a really good fit there. Yeah. Like, oh yeah. I mean, because you know, he's a he's a He's a player manager, and the players will really embrace him. I believe they would. He's also very good copy. The newspapers would sort of, uh, would, uh, you know, gravitate to him. It'd be great back page stuff. I mean, if you're going to make, I mean, he knows the game, and certainly knows the game, and he just wore his welcome out. I, I believe he's wearing his welcome out or is done in Chicago. If that's the case, then he'd probably be a good fifth of the
1: Mets. You know who the Mets manager is going to be? You're going to hear it here first. Yeah, go ahead, David Wright.
2: Okay, that is the first time I'm hearing it. You're right. <laughs> right <laughs> probably is right. the last time. <laughs> right is right. That's an interesting call. Um, would they go to someone who hadn't done it before? Well, they hired a general manager who never did it before. So... Right. So is that possible? It's an interesting name. I mean, Why not? Uh, very interesting thought, Kevin. Actually, it's not a bad thought, but I, I don't know. I don't know if that's you're going to take a chance like that's a chance. That's a big chance as opposed to going with a proven. You know, the, the Mets are not they, they don't seem to take a lot of chances. They sort of, you know, they go with a lot of tried and true scenarios. So I don't know if I see them being that adventurous where they would go out and hire. A, but but I don't know what, what Van Wagenen is going to do. Maybe he maybe he sees right. He says, you no, know, he certainly was a leader. On that team, no doubt, captain of that team, very well respected. I'm sure he knows the game. I'm sure He's played so many years. I'm sure he knew it, knows it. So that's an interesting idea. I don't know that that's where they'll go, but it's an interesting idea.
1: Well, we've seen success in New York with Boone being mm-hmm. a uh, no doubt. first-time manager. Mm-hmm. If I'm Brody Van Wagenen, though, I uh, I think twice before making that move, and I'll tell you why. If things start to go south in mm-hmm. Queens, right. who are the fans going to go after, Van Wagenen or David Wright?
2: Okay, but you're the one that brought that up. You're the one who just said, I, I think you heard it here first. I would do David Wright. So now you say, "Oh, what well, if things go wrong? They won't hire because things go wrong." Then you know he's out.
1: Well, it's flipped, don't you know? Now I get credit for being right and wrong. That's what I'm two, doing. Two rights <laughs> don't make
2: a wrong. Is that where you're going with this? Sorry, it doesn't break the <laughs> fix the lamp. Sorry, it doesn't fix the lamp. There you go.
1: All right, so maybe I'm a little off. Buck Showalter might actually be a nice fit there.
2: B- uh, Buck is old school, and Buck likes to control. And Buck is a, was a great manager. And he's a great manager, and he's a great was a great general manager, great builder, an architect of teams. He's t- people forget he had a huge hand in the success of putting the Yankees that went on the, their famous run under Tory, But the reality was, Buck was Buck and Stick Michael were two of the architects that put that those blocks in place. They really were. So Stick, and, and then he built Arizona, and he left the, the Arizona won the World Championship in '01, but. Buck put built that whole franchise and put it together, and then you know, and then Buck, you know, Buck was tough. Buck was tough, and you know, he wore out his welcome. But the reality is that you know, Buck doesn't suffer fools either, and he's a, he's he's actually a really good broadcaster. We have him on yes, and, and he's, he's funny. Oh, he's funny, he's hilarious. You see another side to him. But you don't see. I didn't see a lot of humor with him when he was a manager. Let's put it that way. I, I never saw a lot of humor with Buck, but Buck is really good, and I, I I like. I've come to know him, and I really respect him, and I really like him.
1: Before we move on, I want to remind everybody, Nets Media Day live on the Yes Network on Friday. As we record this, that's tomorrow, mm-hmm. but as people are listening to it, it's probably Friday. Mm-hmm. Uh, Can I get tickets or something? No, watch think. it on Yes Live. Uh, okay, there you go.
2: What time is that on, Dito?
1: It's on Yes Live. you know what time? <laughs> 11? I
2: don't tell you, it's either on or it says you don't know. <laughs> 11 o'clock. You said it with certitude. Is it 11 o'clock?
1: Well, if it's not, we'll edit it.
2: We're going to edit this thing anyway, so <laughs> this part of it, I'm sure—
1: all right, Flip, let's move on to the history of yes. Unlike in weeks past, uh, you and I have actually talked about this topic uh, in advance of this podcast. Uh, I thought it was important given the um, respect we have for George Steinbrenner and the Yankee organization. But I want to talk to you about the day we lost George Steinbrenner. And I want to look at it from two different ways. Most importantly, we lost a legend that day. Um, you lost a friend and a mentor. Uh so there's one and then two how do you absorb deal with that loss and put on 12 hours of programming at the same time?
2: It was a really tough day uh, it was a really tough day uh, I backtracked 24 hours I had had surgery I had my gallbladder taken out now not that that's you know um, the, the most major of surgeries, but it is surgery and I was under you know heavy anesthesia and so I I'm, got I'm released and I'm, I go home and um, I'm sleeping and I'm going to get a phone call very early in the morning from Randy Levine, who's the team president of the New York Yankees, informing me, telling me that Mr. Steinbrenner had passed away. And um, so I've got to then put the wheels in motion as to what are we going to do and how do we cover this? So I know we had our Yankeeographies and center stages that we had done with him. So I, sh- I make a few phone calls. I share some of the news with the, the people I need to share it with. And so we start running Yankeeography Centers to put a crawl up. The George Steinbrenner, principal of the New York Yankees, has passed away at the age of 80. And we we put basic information on. So we've got the crawl up to inform people. We've got shows running, and and we're doing the the alerts underneath so people understand why we're running these shows. And we we let people know we're going to have live coverage very shortly. Uh, I called Bob Lorenz, who was in Arizona visiting his son uh, at the University of Arizona, I believe. And so I told him what happened. I said, you got to get on a plane. Now, why get on a plane? He had to go to Anaheim because the Yankees, a lot of the Yankees were in Anaheim for the All-Star game. They had one in 09, so the, the team was really loaded with Yankee players, and, and um, Joe Girardi was the manager. So I called Girardi, I told him, he already had known what time I got to him, I said, I need you and the players to come on and just do some stuff about Mr. Steinbrenner, and he said, I, I'm sure, absolutely, would we'll do it. So I knew we had that, we, so we had those live interviews, and then uh, Bill Bolin, who, who line produced it, I executive produced it, Ashley Fugazi, who was so instrumental in so much of this coverage, she's my assistant, she's also a talent production coordinator at Yes!, So she got on the phone. We started making a list of all these people we wanted to try and talk to and get phone interviews with because we couldn't get them in the studio there was enough time. So we got phone interviews. So we were able to get the phone interviews, the live interviews from all the tape interviews we did at the All-Star break, at the All-Star game, and put that in with various segments and clips that we had of of Mr. Steinbrenner. And uh, that became our live coverage for about the next uh, close to 12 hours. That's a long time to be on the air.
1: And I believe uh, Michael Kay was... Manning the studio, is that right?
2: Yes, uh, you know, because Lorenz was in California. We sent L- Lorenz to California. It's the All-Star break because people are on, they take their vacation. We don't get a lot of time off during the season. A lot of people universally take their break during the All-Star time, the downtime, because we don't go to the game. We take the time to, you know, recharge our batteries, and that's what was being done. So we had to sort of get everybody, everybody on the phone, of people in the studio, but we ne- we have a process. You know, we do. We, we record certain features. They're called obits, meaning for obituaries, if famous people, when they pass away, so you have those, those pre recorded pieces. So, you, you know, you have an op-ed, which is important. You have, like I said, the programs that we've done on these very Yankeeography Center stages, whatever. And so we've got that until you, and everybody knows if something were to happen, they call in: Do you need me? Where do I go? Do you want me in Stanford, which is our studio situation, Stanford? Do you need me on a live remote? Do you need me? You need me to do commentary? You need me to get on the phones, get other guests? Everybody knows what we're supposed to do because we've been through this drill. Now, around 18 years, we've been through it a number of times. So the the group is disciplined; they know what to do, which is it takes a lot of the pressure off because we've been through it before. But still, and all, when you lose, lose somebody, the magnitude of George Steinbrenner it, it, it's it's not it's just not a show. It's it goes far deeper than that, far beyond that. The emotional impact of it.
1: Obviously, a whirlwind day for you. You went from uh, anesthesia in the hospital to producing 12 hours. Of uh, live studio coverage, um, even outside of the studio coverage. Um, I would imagine it wasn't until the next day that you really were able to grasp the gravity of what was going on, right? Because you were just 100 miles an hour.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, between the adrenaline and and the anesthesia and, you know, and the gravity of the moment, uh, it was just a lot going on. It It just was. And, you know, you get so busy that you almost Forget the the reason you're doing the show, and I, I, I didn't really forget it. But, I, but let's just say because you're so busy and you're trying to put a show together that's representative of, of of that day, representative of the man who George Steinbrenner was, representative of what he meant to Yankee Land and, and to the world of baseball for that matter. And that still upsets me that he's not in the Hall of Fame. But that's another topic for another day. Um, it, it's just, it's just, it. it you could be consumed by that. You know, I I always talk about moments, right? And I'd say people who are really great at what they do whether you're a, a TV producer or you're a, a baseball player or you're or you're a, I don't know you run a you' run a restaurant whatever it is that you do for a living whatever it is we all have moments we have moments in in, in in the course of a career if that moment swallows you then you know you, you'll be defined by being sw- nobody wants that. The people are really good at what they do. They don't get swallowed by a moment. The moment slows down for them. And they're able to see things a little bit in slow motion. It almost sounds like a cliche, but it's really not. It's really not. You can see things. If the moment slows down for you, you're able to make more co- um, coherent decisions. You're able to sort of do the th- You're able to, as opposed to what do I do, what do I do, you, you kind of know what to do. Because you've either been there before, your experience tells you certain things, or your instincts, your instincts take over, whatever they are. So the moment is not too big for you. Therefore, you excel and you build off that moment. I hope that makes some sense. No, it but, does. It's it's know, un-
1: not unlike a baseball player. The, when the moment slows down for him, right? you don't want him being in the box thinking, okay, it's 3-2, what's coming, fastball, curveball, slider, I don't know, I don't know. Right. Slows down. Right, they know what's coming next. They know what to anticipate. They know how to handle the situation. Well, when they
2: see it, they know how to react. That's yes. that's the point. Yes, yeah. yes.
1: makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. I know you mentioned Hall of Fame, and you wanted to make uh, a conversation about it for another day. But real quickly, it is a crime that he's not in the Hall of Fame. Am I right?
2: Oh, uh, totally. I mean, it's one of the greatest injustices ever. I mean, I mean, he took over a franchise that was that was honestly it was pathetic when he got a hold of the New York Yankees. They were nowhere near the Yankees of their glory days. They were in desperate need of a total makeover, total rebuild, and he did it. I mean, at the point of I mean, how many pennants did he win under George? Six, seven, whatever it was, couple World Series. I mean, that was all under his leadership. I mean, he changed free agency forever. Oh, he can't do that. He went and did it. And he, and he brought, he didn't care what it cost. He wanted to give New York a winner. It was the flagship team in, in all of baseball with the New York Yankees. Sorry, they are, were. And he was able to, to get that done, oh, so yes. I mean, he was the architect of yes. You can Thank you for whatever you want to say. But the reality is, without him, there is no yes. So, I mean, that changed the whole landscape of television. So he changed the landscape of the game for the better. He changed the landscape of television and for the better. So you tell me, you're going to tell me he didn't have it. One of the criteria is that you, you have an impact on the game of baseball. Excuse me, where in what I just said is there not an impact in, on baseball.
1: I couldn't agree more. You're preaching to the choir over here. Why don't you think he's in then?
2: Because that because A New you York know, bias? Well, a New York bias, a George Steinbrenner bias. I mean, you know, he made had a lot of friends. He also a lot of people didn't like him, you know, because they, they were the Yankees and the Yankees won and, and a lot of people didn't like that. Didn't like the way he went about it. Or, you know, and George could be George didn't suffer fools. You know, we talked about earlier about suffering fools. George did not suffer fools at all. Not for a minute would he suffer a fool. So and I say that believe me, I I I, I went through the experience of George Steinbrenner, so I know <laughs> what I'm talking about. He didn't suffer fools. So that when you do that, I mean, yeah, you're right, and you're you're you determined, and you and honestly, he he took good people and made them great. He took great people and made them better because he challenged you to be better. I mean, anytime you do that, some people do it, and some people are uncomfortable with it. People are uncomfortable. Some were uncomfortable with George, and some of those people have votes now as to who these veteran committees who gets in and who doesn't, and it's a shame and it's a sin.
1: Well, you're right. He changed the game. Uh, George Steinbrenner made the game better. He uh, made. A dynasty in New York, and to be honest, he's the reason why we're here today doing this podcast, if you want to go all the way back, right? Because you said it. He started, yes. We wouldn't be here right now.
2: No, I don't know. You certainly wouldn't be in my living room right now. <laughs> <laughs> We're coming to you live from Studio... If, uh, flip's living room. Studio Flip's living room. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, no, of course. I mean, and he, I mean, look at that. Look how that changed everything. I mean, you thought when I'm drawing things on a napkin, I thought this thing was going to change the entire state of the television industry. I did not. I, I mean, I had no idea what it was going to do. I, I mean, I hoped it would work because, I mean, I had left a really good job to, to do this, and I, you know, I believed in it. I absolutely believed, and I believed in him. I believed in George and I believed in and I and I believed in in the job, you know, and and, and when you have that, that's a that's that's a lot of that's a big springboard.
1: Well, as you said, you hoped it would work. Fast forward 18 years. It obviously has worked. Um, I think we should probably talk more about that. This is a big topic. We should probably take a deep dive at some point more in the future. Uh, But for now, what do you say we land this plane flip?
2: Kick the can down the road. Let's go. (laughs) Spread
1: the peanut butter. Spread that peanut butter, baby. (laughs) For John J. Filipelli, I'm Kevin Sullivan saying we'll see you next time.